Hey folks, welcome back to the virtual world. I'm your host and software engineer, Ty. Today is a big episode. This will be the eighth episode of the virtual world. Today's episode is all about Eric Normand and functional programming. Eric has become somewhat of a functional programming guru over the last decade. He strongly believes in the paradigm of functional programming and in the power of functional thinking and design. He draws a clear line between functional language features and the power of functional thinking. This was a great conversation and one that I really appreciate being able to have. Eric is working on a book called Grokking Simplicity, a book designed to break functional design down to its core principles and introduce it into the lives of the everyday programmer who might not be down to read a few textbooks on category theory first. As someone who has tried that approach, his book is wonderful. His book is called Grokking Simplicity and is published through Manning Publications and available through their early access program while he continues working on parts two and three. Manning was gracious enough to give me four codes for free copies of his book. If you are interested, reach out to me on Twitter at TYTR underscore dev or on Reddit at U slash TYTR DEV, no underscore. I am also officially a Manning Publications affiliate. This is crazy exciting for me. You can now use my discount code PODVWORLD20 for a 35% discount on all formats of all of their products. 35%. That's actually nuts. Big shout outs to Manning for giving me this opportunity. I am very grateful and looking forward to working with them more in the future. Lastly, I would like to note that the intro music I'm using is the same as the outro music from the last episode, composed by the wonderful Plasmarial. You can check out their stuff on soundcloud.com slash plasmariel that's p-l-a-s-m-a-r-i-e-l all right let's get to the good stuff as always please enjoy the conversation everybody today is uh, august 6 2020 and it's about 2 p.m est i think eric here is about an hour behind and i am sitting down with eric normand uh sort of one of the i would say most prolific functional programming gurus out there right now how's it going hi tyler i'm good yeah everything's good here yeah i'm, I'm really excited that you came on the podcast uh, thanks for having me to to any listeners that are interested, so first things first, Eric recently 
released. I say recently. How long? When did Grokking Simplicity come out? Uh, so it was officially released about a year ago. Um, but it's still in early access, meaning I'm still working on it. So it's it's published at Manning, and they try to get books out as quickly as possible, uh, just because of the pace of technology. You know, you never know uh, when something's going to change. So you might as well, as the chapters are done, just publish them. Uh, so you can buy it now, but it's not complete. Uh, there's about one third of it released so far, uh, but I'm, you know, manically writing chapters and uh, they're coming out at a regular pace. So very cool. So when you say there's a third of it released, um, the copy that I have is is parts one, two, and three. Does that mean parts two and three have not been released yet? That's right. Yep. Ah, mm-hmm. oh, that's really sad because I feel like uh, they're going to be really great. Well, uh, I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. Everyone likes the well, not everyone. I get a lot of good feedback on the first one. Um, the thing is, though, you know, if you're if you're writing a book the way I'm writing it. It's not like it does get huh it does get deeper and harder but the most important stuff is front loaded right like when you're when you're getting into a new topic like functional programming getting those initial concepts down is actually the most beneficial thing right um getting down the idea of a difference between a function that has a side effect and one that doesn't, that is super fundamental and you can't really do FP without that. So it's, um, it's this paradox because as, as someone who's been doing FP for a long time, I find that stuff kind of boring in a way, right? I, (laughs) I've been doing that for so long. And what's really interesting to me is the deeper stuff. And I think that you see that, in what other people talk about too, but is actually less useful, right? The, the deeper stuff, it's less applicable because it starts getting more and more specialized. And so it's kind of a, the, one of the curses of expertise is you think the, the cool new thing that's only useful in this one thing, but is, it works really well, is actually more important than the fundamentals. I think that's a really great point. And actually that leads me to something I, I think that's really important and something that your book talks about really quickly. And, and uh, like you said, it's very front loaded. And that is the difference between language, fe- language features and actual mindset. And that's the, the biggest issue for me. So some background about myself, just so you know where I'm coming from. Mm-hmm. I would say I am a very traditional software engineer now uh, that is in their mid to late 20s. I say that, but I think most people for some reason kind of peg themselves as a very traditional software engineer, whether they do like embedded systems or Haskell programming or whatever. Everybody seems to think that they have like a very traditional software engineering background. Uh And so I think we're we're all kind of a product of the times. But that being said, I'm a a very typical JavaScript guy. And I'm just trying to like figure out how to do better and how to improve my software and how to sort of like take these other uh, approaches to, to creating things. 
And I think the conversation gets a little weird whenever you start talking about functional programming because everybody who's not who, everybody who's involved in functional programming is very like the grass is greener on our side, and everybody mm. who's not a functional programmer for some reason they just kind of end the conversation at, at like oh we have higher order functions in my language so like I'm already a functional programmer. Uh, right, right, and I mean I think that that's uh, that's uh, a problem with the way that functional programming has traditionally been taught and talked about you know the this this curse i was talking about where you feel like this really hard stuff is more important you know it makes you write a book about monads uh because you just figured out monads and you see like oh this is really useful stuff but um you forget that it took you 10 years of of functional programming to get there and so it's not really going to help someone else figure out like what is this all about i think also we've been kind of uh as i mean we as in functional programmers we've talked about like you were saying the language features the uh interesting ticks tri- tips and tricks that we do and the cool things that we can do with map filter and reduce and stuff like that. Uh, And then when they get imported into a language and people start using them in a non-functional language like JavaScript or even Java has them now, uh, they just don't seem quite right. And we don't know why uh, they're not being used the way we think they should, right? Why, you know, they're still cool, but it, it just points that we haven't, done the kind of soul searching as as a sub segment of the industry to figure out really what is it that functional programming what unites us as functional programmers what makes it distinct from just having map filter and reduce in your language for sure and i i think one thing that's really cool is that your your book has kind of given me a little bit of validation in that I've been feeling this void for a while where I'm doing a lot of these things that I, you know, at face value, like you're supposed to do if you're doing functional design, where it's like, I'm using higher order functions. I'm, mm. you know, I'm doing the map filter reduce thing. I'm using immutable variables wherever I can. I'm doing things like making sure I'm not muting, mutating state unnecessarily and things like that. But it just still feels the same. It doesn't feel like there's been this epiphany yet. And mm. so I think, uh, I, yeah, I think the key is functional design. And right away, your book starts talking about that. We'll, we'll get to the specifics of that in a minute because I have been reading it like since cool. the other day when you emailed me. And it's, it is really wonderful. Uh, to anyone that's listening, I actually have uh, four codes for free copies to, to the book, um, which I assume includes future updates as well. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's oh. the ebook version, all formats of ebook. Uh, yeah. Manning was uh, gracious enough to give those for the listeners. Yeah. They seem really cool. Uh, they seem really involved. And I think that's really awesome. Definitely. Yeah, their their marketing team is really cool, really on point, really big on uh going around and sharing, you know, sharing the the love with people. I I'm I'm even more excited that I have you on now because uh I, there's a one thing that is kind of like the biggest thing for me 
uh, when it comes to software design and and I still think is kind of like the most black box and that is state and state design mm. and modeling change over time. We, let's not dive right into that because okay. <laughs> uh, I think that's a meatier one. But like I, since since those parts of the book aren't out yet, I'm really excited to get your opinions on those. To start simple, let's talk about uh, functional language choices. I know this is something okay. you're probably not super interested in anymore, but I just want to get your take on it. Sure. Um, do you want to talk about Lisp versus kind of everything else? Hmm. Uh, okay, sure. Um, it, this is a really big topic, so I'm just like trying to figure out how to approach it. Um, my My first thing is, you know, a lot of people ask me, like you were asking, like, why can't we just do functional programming in JavaScript? Do I really need to use a different language? And the answer, the simple answer is no. You can do functional programming in JavaScript. Uh, I do it. Uh, I know other people who do it. Um, and, you know, insert any language there for JavaScript. Uh, but the trouble is when you try to learn functional programming using JavaScript, it is so easy to cheat that uh, you'll often fall back into old habits or, um, you know, using a, a variable with a for loop or, you know, something like that. It's just so easy to do. Uh, and the language also isn't, you know, supporting the, the functional idioms as much as a functional language would. And so all that, you know, all that is to say that if you want the immersive experience, if you want, just like learning a, a spoken language is easier in immersion, uh, it is much easier to learn functional programming by going into a language that is, is going to push you to solve it in a functional way. So, then we get into what language to choose, right? Um, One really quick note on yeah. there too. Mm -hmm. I think uh, I think a big problem as well as the ecosystem and sort of the mindset of the ecosystem uh, when it comes to language choice as well. Because even though you can do, and this is something I'm really starting to understand from your book, even though you can do really great functional design inside of JavaScript, you're especially in the JavaScript world, I think, you're going to be consuming libraries and, and modules and things that other people have done. And it's actually incredible how many different libraries, especially huge ones from big companies and you know ones that have millions of downloads a month from NPM, mm. require that you are constantly mutating state of mm -hmm. a mutable variable or something like that. Right, right. Yeah, and they, uh, you know... It's just sort of they have to they have to allow it because it's just what people do. Um, you know, if you look at something like React, where the props could be like this really deep nested, you know, JavaScript objects within JavaScript objects, and some value deep in there is changing, <laughs> like it has to walk it to figure out are these have something changed. Right. And so it almost doesn't, I mean, I'm not exactly sure exactly how React works, but I think it doesn't walk it. It just re renders it every time. Um, and uh, you get 
if you could assume that everything's immutable, you get uh, an enormous benefit of just checking the pointers because if it's, if it's a different pointer, it has changed. And if it's the same pointer, it hasn't changed. I mean, that's basically what immutability means. Uh, so there's a lot of like uh, workarounds that you, you wind up having to do uh, when you don't actually have a functional, you know, functional features in the language. Um, well, I'll talk about the selection of, of language. Uh, you, you phrased it as like Lisp versus everything else. Um, the, the, the most functional language I've ever used is Haskell. Uh, and it was designed with a very, uh, strict functional approach in mind. And I feel like that one has taught me a lot about the functional side of functional programming. Uh, you know, doing a lot more with, uh, calculations and data, you know, pure functions and, and immutable values, uh, than the, than other languages I've used, even the other functional languages. But I use Clojure, and I I prefer Clojure right now. Um, it is a Lisp, and when you talk about Lisp, yes, Clojure does. It supports functional programming. It has immutable values and uh, higher order functions and things like that. But in a Lisp, there's kind of a more prominent thing, which is that it's very dynamic meaning you are interacting with a live system. So I can start up my web server, you know, Clojure runs on the JVM. So it's a web server is on the JVM and then incrementally compile functions that the web server is, is using and have, have it reflect in the next request that's made. Right. So I'm running, I'm, I'm compiling individual pieces of my software as I change them and can immediately see the result without having to reload everything. So I could have a piece of state, right? I could have some, like, like I'm trying to distinguish this from a system where like all the code gets reread every time a request comes through right? This is a persistent server on a virtual machine. And I could have a, a variable that stores like, let's say just the request count. And I can um, change how that count is calculated by modifying a function, recompiling it. And now it, this web server will use that. Uh, and so it gives this very interactive, dynamic feel to it that you don't get in any other system yeah that sounds really cool i'm curious what are you know from your perspective of course what are the sort of benefits uh, and drawbacks of something like closure versus you know common list scheme hmm. bracket if someone like myself were to try to get into lisp nowadays kind of how would they choose and uh -huh. on, like what are your honest feelings about the jvm is that really a good thing for closure long term <laughs> <laughs> oh wow. Okay. Good questions. Um so the the, the closure is is a lisp 
and it is coming from a long line of lisps, right? Including common lisp and scheme. There's a lot that was, you know, borrowed from them. And common lisp, of course, has a bunch of ancestors too. It's kind of an amalgamation of different lisps that existed before it was created. And so the what I see is that closure is a kind of modern take. It is, you know, common list was written in the eighties and this was before everything was on the web, right? This was before file systems had basically, um, kind of converged on the slash as the, (laughs) as the separator of the directories Um, And so closure seems to me kind of like a reboot. It's like, well, let's learn from them. And, but we're starting over. We're not trying to be compatible, backwards compatible with common Lisp. So I used common Lisp before I learned about closure. And when I saw closure, I was like, this is weird. Why don't they want to be backwards compatible. But then once I started using it, it just felt way more modern. Like it was it was able to leapfrog a lot of the old or jettison a lot of the old baggage, but take a lot of the wisdom with it. Uh also the fact that it was on the JVM, I think it was a lot more important back in 2007 and 2008. 2008 is when I learned about Clojure. Um, it was more important back then because JavaScript hadn't exploded. Uh, so just having access to the libraries and infrastructure that the JVM had access to was huge. Common Lisp, one of the problems with it, now I haven't, I, this, was, this was 10 years ago, right? So I haven't used Common Lisp since then. But one of the big problems was the small community and it being an isolated system. You know, it, it couldn't share libraries that easily. Uh, it meant that you couldn't always find a library for what you wanted to do. And you would find libraries for stuff that other people had wanted to do and took the time to write. But you wouldn't find, uh, you know, this, the plethora of libraries that the Java world was used to. Uh, just as an example, if you wanted to do uh, SOAP web services, which requires a ton of work to get right. I mean, not re- recommending SOAP re- web services, but sometimes you have to do them. You have to read in a WSDL file and you know make a, an XML container for your SOAP message. Like... Which was, all of this usually precedes jumping off of something really tall. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's, there's like you have to have a plan for 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 exiting the the, the situation. Um, yeah, or at least some safety nets. Yeah, there. yeah. Like all this stuff uh, was not even possible in the common list world, um, and it was just it was just a, a world. It was a separate world where. They didn't do that stuff. Like, why would you do it, right? But you kind of have to if you need to talk to 
a soap service and uh you know by being on the jvm closure could just do it just like automatically and i think that that was super important some other benefits that closure brought were um, a more uh, abstract view of the list so lisp stands for list processing it is a like fundamental idea this this cont cell the pair uh it's a way of it's a it's a very powerful and useful way of structuring memory right this two pointers and now you can use those two pointers however you want but usually you make a list with them uh that's very powerful but it's very concrete right it's very like you know you're walking pointers all the time and what uh rich hickey did was say well that could actually be just an interface right like in the java world you have this idea of an interface and the interface could be implemented by different classes right different concrete classes could implement that same interface and now you're opening the world up to different ways of structuring memory but that all have a very similar powerful uh, way to access them and so this is in the closure world is known as the sequence abstraction and there's multiple abstractions in the in the closure world that are similar but that's kind of the the most powerful and most groundbreaking one it's the most commonly used one and so i i feel like that that kind of sums it up it's like taking a fresh look with more modern eyes uh at at the lisp experience taking what what uh wisdom was was baked in and learned over time but then jettisoning stuff that didn't really work anymore and tapping into the resources that the JVM ecosystem provided. And so do you think closure script is maybe the next iteration of that process? Uh, that's, um, I mean, that is certainly a possibility. I, I'm not going to predict that. Um, so JavaScript closure script compiles to JavaScript. And so that lets it run on the browser or in node or, you know, any of the smaller JavaScript runtimes. And I think more importantly, it lets it have access to that ecosystem really easily. That's right. That's right. And when it came out, there wasn't much of an ecosystem in JavaScript. You know, this was 2011, the most common way to write your front end application was with jQuery. Right. And so NPM wasn't that big. It was just getting started. Uh, Webpack wasn't around, uh, you know, all these things that we, we take for granted today weren't there, but it was a good bet. You know, JavaScript exploded. There's millions of libraries now that ClojureScript can take advantage of and more places than ever that JavaScript runs. So yeah, I think it was a good bet. Uh, I don't know if I would bet whether closure script um becomes like the main focus and closure becomes like an old thing that nobody uses anymore gotcha okay 
Well, uh, so I guess lastly for UI, how how do you build your your user interfaces now, your websites and whatnot? Do you are you using ClojureScript or I think earlier you mentioned that you are using JavaScript to a degree, so. Yeah, uh, I am. I do use ClojureScript. That is my preferred way. ClojureScript with uh, React wrappers. So React is, works really well with ClojureScript. Like I was talking about before, uh, the immutable data makes it really nice. Um, the fact that we, we define most of our components as just functions. Um, you know, we don't make classes. And it's interesting because I see a lot of, uh, I guess I'd call it churn and uh, like features, new features of React and stuff like that. Like we've basically been using React mostly the same way with, you know, minor tweaks since like 2013. <laughs> and we like, you know, poke our head up to see what the JavaScript people are doing. And we're like, oh my God, another thing? Like what, how many names do you have to learn? Like just to use, uh, you know, names of libraries and frameworks and stuff just to use this thing. We've been using the same one for, you know, twenty since 2013 and it's been working fine. Um, that said, it, it probably is showing its age now, but it still works really well. It's still very comfortable. You know, we have a thing called Fig Wheel that gives you a live coding experience uh, in the browser. So I know a lot I have of... used Fig Wheel just a little bit, and uh -huh. the first time that I used it, I think I followed through with like the little Flappy Bird clone. Oh, cool. From from some article or something and oh man when like the first time i recompiled the function and it just started like working immediately in the browser yeah with, like very very little round trip time there i just my eyes were just kind of glowing i was i felt really good about it yeah yeah and it's uh it's amazing because uh you know if you ask javascript programmers like this has been my experience I, nothing against javascript programmers right but in my experience, I've asked people like, do you have live reloading? Like if I, if you type something into the, your file and you save it, you see that change in your browser right away, right? And they're like, oh yeah, we've had that. Yeah, we have that. Yeah. And then you ask them, yeah, but if you, if you, if you type something like you change, like let's say the class of a, an HTML element and you hit save, like it just immediately you see the difference in your HTML like output. And they're like, well, not really, because when you hit save, then it recompiles and then it reloads. And if you're not on that few, like because you had to like open an accordion or something, you know, and there's like all these, then you have to click around and get back to where you were. And now you're now you can see the change. Like ah, oh, I see. That's not that's not live. <laughs> you know. You know what's funny is yeah. that this has like an inverse Morse law to it almost. This, it's getting worse somehow. Right. Nowadays, there's a lot of like movement back towards like I I don't know how to phrase it, but I've been saying the client is now full stack. So like mm. you'll still have your your web services be separate, like you would expect in, in sort of a full stack thing in modern days, mm -hmm. but your your front end is now like full stack again in the right. JavaScript world in a lot of ways you where you've got like, like a, a server state. component. Yeah, and you have a state yeah. and you have a router and you have everything that you have on the back end. 
Yeah, and then you like you change a server route or something like oh you you add a console log to debug something on the server and it refreshes your entire front end and oh. like you have to you have to like fully implement state and sessions for right. users in your application before you can even like reload yourself onto the same page yeah. whenever you know it's just it's getting worse and worse and and nowadays I like I've been using this thing called Sapper for my own personal like side projecty stuff mm-hmm. and I swear um on my really awesome beefy desktop the reload time for like a console log or something like a log statement is probably 11 seconds oh man it's crazy sorry i didn't mean to tangent so hard but yeah somehow it's getting worse (laughs) i mean i i i don't doubt it um it, it reminds me that back in back when uh closure script first came out, you know, it was new and people were using like the only compiled to JS language that people were really using was CoffeeScript. And that was super fast to compile. Uh, and so people, you know, when something is fast to compile, you kind of don't mind. Like, let's say it takes 200 milliseconds, 300 milliseconds, less than half a second. You don't mind hitting the refresh button on your browser you're on your dev machine. That's going to take less than less than a hundred milliseconds, and so the the feedback loop really feels fast, right? But as you add features and you add transpilation steps, and things start getting slower because you want to do like type analysis, and you're doing you know you're doing more and more stuff uh, that loop gets slower and slower so people were complaining in uh, about closure script that it takes so long to compile but it only it takes a long time to compile the first time and so people are used to like i'm going to compile from source every time because it doesn't take long well if it takes a long time you don't want to do that and so we don't do that in the closure script world we compile it once it takes you know, it can take a long time, 60 seconds. But then once it's compiled, uh, you only have to compile individual files. And so that's really fast. And plus the JVM is loaded and hot, right? So you don't have that wait time anymore. And you have a watcher on your file system, you're hitting save, and then you've just got a web socket between your browser and the JVM server. And so it's sending up the code really quickly uh you you can't you can't really beat that you know you like there's there's something architecturally that 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 liveness has that even if the steps get longer and longer we can just compile less and less (laughs) you know we can we we can play with that a lot more i think um and I, i don't know I feel like I'm I'm going off the rails here, but there's like a this division between the live coding and the like compile or the edit compile run loop that most languages have. This was done in like the 50s, right? This this is that same uh, difference between like a mainframe where you sent your punch cards to and you had to wait a week for the the result to come back 
uh, versus the time sharing where you had a terminal into the computer and you would type something and using you know, using threads right it would it would give you some time like a little slice of time it would run it and then give you the answer right back right it goes way back to then and lisp was on that time sharing side and the uh edit compile run loop was on the other side the kind of mainframe side and and the edit compile run loop like looked like it was losing except then with the personal computer revolution everyone now has a full mainframe on their desk right and so it's fast you don't have to share it you don't have to get in line but you still have that same idea of i'm going to compile a program into an executable i'm going to run that executable and i'm going to check the output whereas the the live system the time sharing system always had this idea of your program is running you send it a line of code it will run that line of code and show you the output and that's that architectural difference lets you do so much it makes up for so much like the lack of tooling because you can write your own tool right there or you can write just the tool that you need like you don't have to you know write a console log rerun your program and and see what it outputs you can save that value instead of logging it save it to a variable and at any time just check the value of the variable right you can have it printed every 5 seconds as it's changing you know so there's there's all sorts of uh benefits to having this live system that uh i don't know this isn't about functional programming anymore this is about you know live coding but it's the kind of thing that uh i i think has to be experienced to really appreciate yeah and i think it's i think it's just as important as as some of the other things but with that let's get back to uh sort of functional thinking and functional design um i'm the type of person that has sort of repeatedly like i don't believe in either one of the two camps that i find over in the javascript world one of which is the oh we've already got functional language features so we don't need anything else mm-hmm. and the the other that's like just kind of oblivious <laughs> um like functional eh you know we're we're already making stuff happen and i do kind of feel that way to an extent but uh but i still like sort of know that there's something else out there and i've i'm the type of person that has read bartosz maluski's category theory for programmers oh, cool. twice okay. and both <laughs> times have just come away with just like this glazed very dazed feeling of confusion okay and like um and so i this is where your book comes into play for me because just the first three chapters i feel like it's already like it's already got my wheels moving in the right direction which is incredible given how how many times i've tried to like get to the same level of like mm. a, a movement in in the thinking um and how many directions that i've come at it from so with that said let's talk about sort of like the core one of the core principles of the early stages of the book which is uh data calculations and actions i'll just kind of let you go off on that and, and brain dump uh yeah so um i try to 
kind of re redefine functional programming to to put it like that uh to put it kind of bluntly um functional programming is often talked about as you know using mathematical functions stuff like that uh like a very i would call it a reductionist view uh but it's not how how I or my functional programming friends program. Like we're using mutable state and we're using impure functions all the time. So there must be something that, but, but we still, we still understand like what the definition is trying to get at, but it's simply not hitting it right. And so that was the opportunity that I saw that, there was this definition was very academic and no one had written anything uh, for the industry, for the, you know, working programmer. And so what, what I tried to do was figure out like, what is, what is before that? And that's what I came up with this distinction between actions, calculations and data. So actions are in in the bad guy. Well, yeah, they're the bad guy in the story, yeah. But actions are the the what you would normally call an impure function, right? They're not the side effect. See, this is why I had to come up with my own term, action. Like a lot of a lot of uh libraries are called like effect libraries, but it's not the effect, right? The effect is the email got sent right? The cause was your code, right? So I'm talking about the code. So it's the cause, but cause doesn't make sense as a term. So I came up with the the term action. And this is anything that has an effect or is affected by the outside world, right? The world is changing. Uh, Things are, signals are coming into your software are being sent to your computer, uh, you have to interpret them. Usually, uh, there's some time component to them. So when you run them is important. Um, you know, for instance, sending the email today is different from sending it tomorrow. Uh, but then there's also a number of times component. So if I send the email zero times, it's very different from sending it one time. It's very different from sending it ten times. So anything that depends on when it is run or how many times it is run is an action. Now, if it doesn't depend on how many times it's run or when it's run, it's a calculation. It's still code. It still runs, but it doesn't matter when you call it. It doesn't matter how many times you call it. I, I'm calling that a calculation. Um, you, you would hear other programmers call it a pure function. Right. And this, the nice thing about calculations is they're much easier to test because notice if you have an action and it it necessarily depends on when it is run, that means if it's run in production versus run in development, it's different. Right. Or how many times it's run. You want to test a function, you might test it a hundred times, a thousand times in the in the course of a day while you're developing, whereas uh, a calculation, it doesn't matter. You can test it as many times as you want. It's not going to affect the outside world. Um, and it's always going to give you the same answer. 
if you give it the same input. So the same inputs, same outputs. Um, and so usually in, in uh, like a language like JavaScript, an action or a calculation is represented by the same thing, a function, right? Uh, so that's where you get the impure functions and the pure functions. The functions is a language feature. If you're using Java, it might be a class or an object represents that action or that calculation. And then, okay, so that's action and calculation. The last thing is data. And data is distinguished from, from the other two because it doesn't run. Data is, if you look it up in the dictionary, the definition is facts about events. So when you think about a fact, it doesn't change. Like the fact that I received this message at this time, or I read the temperature, the temperature changes, right? But when I read the temperature, the fact was it was at 90 degrees uh, at that time, right? When I read it. And so that is a piece of data. It's immutable and uh, it can't be run. The, so there's like a double-edged sword with that. One, it's really useful. You can like just write it down. You can put it in a database. Uh, it can be interpreted in many ways. So you can look at that temperature data and interpret it as a time series of like the temperature, right? Or you can look at it like what is the, uh, comparing it to another thermometer, you can say what is the, uh, the, the discrepancy between these two, right? Or, you know, you, it, it's, it's sort of like uh, the example I give is when uh, back before the existence of writing where they would tie knots and strings to count heads of cattle that were done in a trade, back then they were looking at it like, I just want to know that I got the money that I was owed right? Because I wanted to count, I needed to count all these cattle. But now we find one of these, we dig one of these things up, this record of this immutable record of that transaction. We don't care if they were, you know, if they got their money's worth, but we can now do archaeology and figure out like, what was the economy like? And what was in this year? Was it a good harvest? Or, you know, we can, we can interpret it in different ways. The Downside, the other edge of that sword is that data needs to be interpreted, right? It, it, it doesn't mean anything on its own. 90 degrees, what does that mean? Well, you got to think, you know, you got to interpret it. Oh, it's hot today, right? You have, to, you have to apply some code to it to make a, a decision or a judgment on it. Uh, and so data is, you know, super useful, super... Uh, has a, a long tradition behind it, and it's sort of the the holy grail. Is you want all your stuff in data, but then you need to write calculations uh, to make decisions on that data to interpret it, and then you need the actions to carry out the decisions. You know what actions do I take given this judgment? Yeah, and I think this idea, this is one of the main things I've already taken away from from your book. I think the idea of offloading 
uh, stuff that otherwise could be very long-winded procedural efforts in your code into some sort of like data or object that acts as not just a definition for something, but also mm-hmm. kind of configuration for uh, things that can consume it as processes later. Um, the pizza example in your book being a really great one. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, I find that to be really enticing. And I think uh, it's something that I've accidentally done a couple of times. Cool. And I've always really enjoyed it. I've always thought like, oh, this is way better than, you know, doing something like very procedural in order to kind of build these these data structures up or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's an extremely compelling idea. Uh, with that, I think you talked, a, you kind of touched a little bit on this, but c- can you talk about uh, what atomic really means and sort of like what atomic transactions are? Huh. Yeah, sure. Uh, so an atomic transaction is a way of doing multiple actions. You know, I'll use the nomenclature we just we just defined. It's a way of doing multiple actions uh, in a way that if one, uh, if any of them fail, the whole thing fails, and if any if they succeed then they all succeed and from the outside you can't see the kind of in between states so does that make sense so let me give a concrete example uh, yeah let's do that let's say i have some mutable variable and i want to um i want i'm just keeping track of account cuz that's always the the easiest thing to do so when I have to, when I let's say I want to increment this number, so when I increment it, I have to read in the current value, uh, add one to that number, and then store the value back. It's a three-step process, and unfortunately, languages like JavaScript make it seem like it's a one one-step process because they have the plus plus operator, right? Uh, but there's really three things going on. Now imagine a language with threads uh we could like let's say i'm a thread and you're a thread we're both incrementing this number at the same time so you read it then i read it you add one to your number i add one to my number and then we both write our numbers back we're gonna lose one of the increments right because i did the read uh first and then you did the read before I got to store my increment into that, right? So it's at 10, then I read 10, and you read 10, and then I add one, so it's 11, and then you add one, it's 11, and then I write the 11, then you write the 11. We did two increments, but now it's only at 11. It should be at 12. Uh, so that's not atomic. We need some way of making this three-step process into appear like a one-step process. Uh, And so that's what Atomic does. It it lets you do the read and the write uh, without uh, losing, like if two threads are doing it, it lets you do them in like either a certain order, right? So you could queue up and, you know, you say, well, we're not going to read at the same time, read and write at the same time. We're just going to queue up. And I'll go first and then you go or whoever, you know, whatever order you figure out, as long as they're in some order that 
that will work. Another thing you could do is you can use a lock. Just like on a bathroom, you could say, hey, I'm in here, don't open this door, right? And so I am now incrementing. Nobody else can come in and increment. So you can't read what's in there right now. You're not allowed. Uh, and so that would let me, you know, do my business, <laughs> read, read the value, add, and then store it back in. And then you just have to wait, just like, you know, just like in a bathroom, a lock on a bathroom. Uh, and so th these are different ways of achieving the same end which is to avoid situations of interleaving, right? So if you have, if you have threads, uh, you, the, the operating system or the hardware, depending on how it works, how the threads work, are interleaving the operations and you can't control that. So at any point in your program, you could be halfway through some function and the system's gonna say, okay, your turn is up and start running another thread that might be trying to access that same variable and you're not done, right? So this is called interleaving where the, the instructions from one thread, you know, the machine instructions from one thread are interleaved with the machine instructions of another thread and you're totally out of control of, of that process. So you wanna, you want to get some control back, some control over that ordering again. Um, now, I know JavaScript has one thread. So in theory, this wouldn't be a problem because, you know, if I have one, let's say one callback in JavaScript is doing an increment and then another callback is doing an increment, only one of them is going to run at a time. So there's some queue, there's like the event queue that's making sure that these things happen in some order, right? No, well, it's not, it, there's no guarantee, sadly. There, are, it's kind of, uh, it's up to the programmer to, I guess, to make sure that that is actually how it's happening because you can still program your code in such a way that callback one takes a break for a little bit and callback two then starts going. And, you know, well, so there's still ways to make that same mistake. Right, and that comes up because you've got, asynchrony asynchrony right so if i'm doing let's say a multi-step callback so my callback uh makes an ajax request and then in the callback for that ajax request it makes another ajax request and then it does another one and another one so there's like this callback hell chain of callbacks you know each one of those has to go through the queue and it's started at some later time that's totally chaotic and un unknowable. And that reintroduces this idea of interleaving. Uh, because now between, you know, the request and the response of that Ajax request, uh, think other things will run. And uh, you're out of control of that. So even though uh, in the small, like if you're doing synchrony, synchronous things in JavaScript, nothing can interleave. Uh, once you start doing asynchronous things, which is the way you're supposed to do it in JavaScript, you start having uh, this problem again. And so, in yeah, and I think 
Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, uh, in the book, I call these, because I'm trying to unify the idea of uh, threads and these callback chains. Uh, and also, stuff is happening on the server, right? So you might say, well, I want to, in the front end, I want to do something like increment. I'm going to make an AJAX request, get a number from the server, add one to it, and then make another AJAX request to tell the server to save this new number. Well, that you know might as well be take a million years. If you got a million clients accessing the server all doing that, they're going to overwrite each other. And so you also have to now think about uh, the the server having its own interleaving thing, right? Interleaving instructions. And uh, that's why I'm calling these timelines to unify this idea of interleavable actions that uh, that you have to worry about. Yeah, I think that's a really great way to go about it as well. So is this kind of how Datomic works? Um, I know that I've looked into it a little bit and it just seems kind of magical and everybody that uses it sort of praises it very highly. So do you want to talk a bit about that? Maybe have you used it? Do you have any experience? With I that? have used it. Yeah. Um, so Datomic is a database written by the same folks who uh, write and steward the closure language. Uh, it's a commercial database. I should mention that. Um, whereas Clojure is open source. And the key thing about the database is that it is an immutable database. Uh, that means that instead of updating a row in a table like you would in a SQL database or updating a field in a Java uh, JSON object like you would in in like a Mongo style thing. You you never update anything. You only add to the database. And uh that means you know the records are permanent, but by a trick of <laughs> of uh of the of the way you're adding, you can actually when you like let's say you you want to record a different value for someone's first name. You've already got John's first name in the database, but now you realize you misspelled it, so you want to change it. Uh, you, instead of updating the space on the disk that held his name, you add a new entry that says, well, from now on, here's the new spelling, right? And so... This gives you uh, some cool abilities. First of all, you can treat it like a mutable database, right? You can just store stuff and change records and stuff uh, without without too much concern uh, about it uh, feeling weird, right? So you can have entities with attributes, and you you're you're just updating those attributes. But you can also query the database at a different point in the past. So you can say, what data did we have in the database one year ago? Right? Or you can say like something that you might want to do for like accounting purposes. You could say, what was the state of the accounts, you know, the bank accounts on December 31st? 
before the new year, right? Or what was, if you have some, let's say, uh, a bug report, the bug report comes in on, on January 20th, you can say, what was the exact state of the system when this bug report was filed? Because you might have been, you know, you've been developing uh, and changing this database since then, but you could go back in time and look at it. You can also make it like an audit log. You can say, well, just tell me all the changes that have occurred to this one entity uh, since, you know, the beginning of time. And you can see them all. Uh, instead of basically losing all that information every time you make an update. The fact that uh, Datomic is proprietary is kind of very sad, actually. Um, I think there's uh, there's something that I saw that was really cool a while back, and this is a library for the ClojureScript ecosystem that sort of mirrors mm-hmm. uh, the experience of using Datomic, but on the front end. So mm-hmm. instead of having some sort of like global state contract uh, construct, you just have this sort of uh, you know, um, immutable database structure, which I think is a really great idea. It almost sounds kind of like event sourcing to me in a way. Uh, yeah, it's very much like event sourcing. Um, you it, Doing event sourcing in Datomic would be pretty easy uh, because event sourcing, uh, just to, to let the listeners know, is... Uh, is you have a log of events that occur and you never erase the events. You know, the events are just added to and you can reconstruct the state of the system at any time uh, just by replaying those events through some, some function that calculates, well, what, would this, what does the state need to be after this happens and this happens and this happens and this happens? Um, uh, it's it's very similar. Um, the yeah, I think another thing that's kind yeah. of interesting too, especially if you if you take that approach to sort of like this immutable data structure for mm-hmm. the for the database and you use it on the front end, you could actually push that to your web server at some point during maybe like a bug report, and then you could pull the entire history of a person's interaction with the app <laughs> and sort of replay through it. That's right. That's right. Which is a that's sort of that's one of the use cases that I saw for it, and I was like, oh, that's actually incredible. You can replay it, and you know, I've seen where people have, you know, if they're using React, so it's very functional, um, functional front end. You can actually have a scrubber, you know, and you can go back and forth and see what the UI looked like at different points in time. Um, which is pretty cool. So with all of that said, I know that we kind of got off into the weeds maybe a tad bit there, but the, sure. the, I think the main question that I have here is when moving to, I think, I think state is inarguably probably the most important part of software design. Mm-hmm. And I say, and I, it's also probably like the hardest to get right. And I think it's something that a lot of the industry in my experience, of course, my, my own frame of reference is a little bit, skewed due to my experiences but i I feel like we're just getting it wrong still somehow so my question is in the functional programming world you know coming from something very typical like javascript what does it look like to get state management right for your application without maybe pulling off into the datomic world which sounds like a proprietary but uh maybe very easy way to get it right huh that's a really 
a good question. And I don't know if I have a functional programming answer. You know, I can't speak for all functional programmers. Um, I, I do think that functional programmers tend to use uh, a lot less mutable state. So any, any way that you can do stuff without having mutable state is good. Um, the other thing is that we tend to use more local state, right? So instead of uh, leaking out the state, I guess, you know, there's, there's an old adage that like you shouldn't use global variables, right? Uh, and the reason is that if you share these global variables all over your code, like it's impossible to figure out like what actually made the value the way it is right now. Uh, and so you're supposed to use like local variables and as much as possible. Uh, and, and, and functional programming tends to do that. Uh, we're not, mm, we're not, uh, what's the right word? We, we use the variables if we need them, right? We know, we know they're there. <laughs> uh, in the closure script world, we do tend to use mutable state. I mean, sorry, global mutable state. But so, for instance, there's a, a, a library called Reframe. It's a framework. And it has, it stores a global mutable database. That's what it's called. And the structure of the database, it, it leaves up to you. Uh, but it is a global mutable variable. And what we have found in, uh, in the closure script world is that one global mutable variable is not that bad, especially considering that we also have, you know, in most apps, even if you're not using Datomic, you're just using Postgres or something like that's a global mutable variable too. the database. Anything can just read from the database and write to the database. Uh, so you have, you know, you're, you have the, the global mutable data. You're just kind of, um, you know, pretending it's not there in your, in your front end app. Um, if you're trying to be super pure about it. Um, I think the, the fact that there is, only one global mutable variable and then all of the data is immutable so you can't just change the value of some object or some hash map uh willy-nilly you have to change it always through that one global variable uh, that really helps and so i actually came up with a kind of a scheme taking these things this into account this idea of Okay, let me back up. So what, I, I've been trying to like figure out what people are doing in the React world to manage state. And what I see a lot of is people jumping between libraries, thinking that this library is going to solve the problem. And this library, oh no, let's all switch to this one because this one has a better model of state. No, let's go over here because, you know, uh, that was wrong. We need this other thing. And they're yeah, just actually the uh, the global the state management ecosystem in the JavaScript world is 
probably my absolute least favorite thing about it. I don't like any of the libraries. I think they're all terrible. And especially uh, there are some. Uh, like there's this one called ngrx in uh, the, sorry i get heated about this yeah. particular topic there's there's one called ngrx in the angular world uh-huh. and my god the amount of boilerplate like to mm. say that you have an array of things that you need to update and read from is just a ridiculous amount of boilerplate code and the amount of of i would say mental complexity that it adds or what is the word that people use i i forget but Basically, the amount of stuff you have to keep in your head mm-hmm. at any one time to understand what's happening with these things, I think is like excessively high. Uh, yeah. And so it's really, uh, I mean, in some point it feels like a vindication, but in another point, it's not really because it's not, we didn't want to have, we didn't want to have revenge or anything. Uh, but you know, that's what people have always said about functional programming. Like, oh, it's so much overhead. I just want to, I just want to make, make it work. I don't want to deal with immutable values. I don't want to deal with like, you know, writing higher order functions. I just want a for loop and I just want to make it work. But when you do that, that's what happens is like, you want to write something more abstract, like a library has to be. And by abstract, I mean more general right? Like you want to organize this best practice into a library. And now you have to deal with all of this, the the mess that is created by the mutable state. And to make just one array, you have to, you know, like you said, set up all this stuff because it's mutable and the thing needs to know when any of it changes. Whereas if you just use an immutable value, it can't change. You can just not deal with that. Um, so my, what I realized was when people are jumping from one thing to another, they're kind of thinking like we want the one silver bullet state library that's just going to make everything easy. And that's, that's the wrong level of, to look at things, right? You, you don't want to look at, um, you need a deeper understanding of the problem of state uh, as, you know, as a programmer, maybe, maybe this is even like architecture level thinking, but you need a deeper level to, to choose the library. And so what I came up with was, a, a scheme like a, a spectrum of locality of state, right? So you have some state is super global, meaning like every user of your system needs to have access to this. And then there's some data that only, you know, one user needs to have. But of course, it's shared between different, uh, different devices, and then there's some state that is local to one device, but all your tabs will share it, right? And then there's some state that only one tab needs. And then there's other state that just one component needs, right? So like the tab is, you know, when it's at the tab level, maybe it's all the components in the tab might need to access it, right? And then you have the stuff that's just the component, the stuff that's, that's super local, like is this, drop down box open right you're making a drop down box component 
you just want to to have a little bit of state in there just to know open or closed right you um you want that state to be as local as possible you don't need to share that with the server you don't need other users certainly to know that and so by looking at it this way of locality you're able to say well this library works for this particular locality of state so you look at something like redux something i'm i'm somewhat familiar with um I, I i don't know all the state libraries out there but i do know redux uh and it they're, is, they're kind of all essentially the same thing well but so but now there's what recoil and context and there's all sorts of stuff um well redux is local to the tab but shared by all the components you know potentially shared anything in that redux what do they call it the 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 thing that holds all the data um the store yeah the store the anything in the redux store could could be like read in by one of the components right um and uh, similarly with recoil it was designed so that different components could share uh, a piece of state um and so by looking at it like and then of course there's the component state itself the like you know set state get state thing that the components have that's very local to the component so by looking at it like this where you know we've people have been kind of targeting a certain locality and then they'll give a few examples when they're introducing the library and they're like look how great this is compared to what you're doing uh because it solves all these problems well they're only just solving that one problem that one problem of what if you have some value on the server that you need to share with all the devices that this user is logged in with right or what a, uh, you know we have all this state that we need to share between components and like how do we do that but no one is looking at the deeper level and saying well actually in some cases we need this library and in other cases we need this library and in other cases we need another library but that doesn't even exist so we're going to have to write our thing ourselves they're basically looking for someone to fix all their problems with a single with a single stroke right some single library on that last note there's a couple there's actually a funny story i think so ngrx this is my my least favorite state management library so i kind of i talk about it a lot actually um me and a, a, an old podcast guest we talk a lot about ngrx and the way that they sort of like I guess, market themselves mm -hmm. when you're first reading about it. They do that same thing where they're like, look how much better this is, but they take it a step further, which is they actually start to like mansplain to you that everything you've ever known about state is wrong. And they start to <laughs> shame you. Like oh, there yeah. are little bits of the documentation that's like, you know, how could you ever think this is right? How oh, dare God. you? <laughs> yeah, that's bad. That's bad. I mean, the, the, the real trouble is, I mean, they probably do know a lot, right? The problem oh, is for sure. that our industry is continually being reborn because it's got it's growing so fast. So at any point in time, it's not fair to say like, "Why didn't you know this? You should have known this." 
Like, no, like half the people have less than five years of experience at any time. And so, ah, yes, the immaturity factor that that is an interesting topic in and of itself. It's not fair. It's like, you know, when you hear someone talking to a kid that way, you're like, hey, they're only three. Like, no, they didn't know that. And it's not unreasonable that they didn't know that. Um, so yeah, talking down, I think that's a yeah, that's a really great way to put it. And I think I'm I'm probably over-exaggerating a little bit, but yeah, that's how it feels when you're reading the documentation. Yeah. And it's really interesting because it's it's something where they're tackling specifically JavaScript client-side state. Mm-hmm. And state is like the core problem in software. Mm-hmm. And it's also something that's somehow in the last 80 years we haven't solved this problem. But but some still there's a group of people out there that will like yeah shame you because exactly. you haven't mastered the art of mastering state in uh in javascript clients it's hard it's really hard i feel like that is um i mean that's one of the things that we we do in functional programming is we're like it's too hard <laughs> right let's do something easier which is not have mutable state <laughs> you right know and i think that's a step in the right direction the problem is well i talked with this uh, with a recent podcast guest about this and that's like when you change tooling you legitimately put yourself like you take a step back that's in your right. skill level yeah. like if you change to a new type of keyboard or if you're in you're a uh, instrumentalist you're a musician and you switch to a new instrument or anything like that you switch to a new programming language like sometimes you just feel like a child that's and it's right. not because you should feel this like incredible imposter syndrome or you know nothing it's it's because you're unfamiliar with the territory and i think that is probably the biggest problem in the javascript ecosystem because javascript right now just happens to be where the money is most people mm-hmm. that are doing software, they're just trying to pay their bills, feed their family. And so they're, you know, they go to X company and X company doesn't say, hey, let's sit down and like talk about the core problems of software engineering. They start with like, we need to pick a library for this. We need to pick a library for that. Right. And so every six months you're, you know, in some new world where you're mostly just trying to get some deliverables done and you're trying to just glue the pieces together the best that they'll fit. Right. And you're not really dealing with like core fundamental issues. Right. And as you gain experience as a programmer, you do develop a kind of skepticism about new languages and new libraries. Uh, I, I had the, the good fortune of working at a company where they kind of called me in as like the, the grown up. <laughs> you know, I, I learned that everyone was in their early 20s and this was like their first piece of software they were writing and um i could tell that one of the things that i could really provide value on was just like hey don't upgrade that library you know don't switch just stick with this one because that other one is going to have like it the the library you have has problems but the other one is going to have problems too and they would get so um uh, you know, kind of grass is greener and believe the hype of the, of the library without really understanding how it worked. I mean, you know, they're under tight deadlines. They don't have time to read the code and figure out what it's actually doing. Uh, they're, they're using, I mean, it's, it's smart in a way they're trying to outsource all of that to a library. I don't, not just outsource the code, but outsource the understanding. Um, and, uh, sometimes that 
doesn't work. Um, and it, it, it was really interesting because I would, you know, there's like the not invented here syndrome, but some of these libraries are so new and so untested uh, that you kind of should write it yourself sometimes. Like, cause then at least you know it and you control it and you understand how it works. Um, I don't know. It's, it's a, it's a new and, and complicated world. Yeah. And there, it's layers upon layers as well, because yeah. it's not as simple as being stuck in, in library hell, because in the end, once you get used to being in library hell, that becomes part of your tool set. And so mm -hmm. breaking out of that becomes unfamiliar and starts to feel kind of scary. Uh, just like you like, don't you know, have libraries keyboard. for everything. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. Which library do I use? I don't know. Oh, well, we just write it ourselves in this language. It's three lines of code. There's a lot of pressure too, I feel, to uh, constantly be upgrading and whatnot. Here's like a concrete example of this is, mm -hmm. uh, and something I've constantly criticized React about is the ever-changing API with like super minimal gains. Mm -hmm. um, in one case, uh, this was before, I don't know, do you know what React hooks are? Yes, mm -hmm. I've read about it. So them. basically, back in the day, you would just, you'd have this like state object in your component and you would use this function called uh, set state in order to update that state and right. then it would like, decide what it needs to re-render and re-render those things. And then they switched to like this idea where you'd have one call to this state mechanism per thing that you want to be stateful about. And then you would destructure the return from that function into like the variable itself and then a, a method to, or I guess I should say a function to update that data. And like six days after the API update that came out with hooks, I put a, a question on Stack Overflow about some state issue that I was experiencing, some bug that I had found in the React code base actually. And the responses were largely not like, how do I solve this problem? It was mostly just like, wow, you're not using React hooks yet? <laughs> what a nerd. <laughs> right, it's, right, like so I'm gonna yeah, rewrite my that. million line code base. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because React decided that uh, they didn't like the syntax for state today. I mean, I honestly don't know, like, are those people who are just, like, they just started, like, uh, you know, a week ago? <laughs> or they're, you know, it, it's possible. The thing is, we're growing so fast. Like, there could be people who don't have any legacy code yet. They're not, they don't have a job yet. They haven't or they're in a startup where they're making all the decisions, you know, all these things are possible. Um, yeah. I think it's, it's weird too, because on the internet, the voice is sort of whitewash. Like everybody's right. the same entity. They're the, not you. Right. So it's hard to, it's hard to know who's got wisdom and who doesn't. Right. And of course the people with wisdom probably also don't have the time to, to be yeah, answering absolutely. stack overflow questions. For sure. The people with wisdom are out doing something with it. And right. so it's very, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a weird grind, but uh, I think I've officially exhausted everything that I can use to sort of appear insightful in, in this conversation in particular, but I'm curious, do you have, uh, are there any other topics that you want to discuss or things that you want to talk about? Um, not really. No, I, I mean, I could talk all day, but I uh, don't want the podcast to be forever, and I, I, I will have to go soon. So. Yeah, no worries. So I guess uh, to wrap up, um, 
where can people like where and how can people support you beyond checking out your Twitter and uh, and Lispcast? Do you want to talk a little bit about Lispcast for anybody yeah. that's interested? Yeah, uh, I'll talk about my various things. Um, so the book, you can find the book. It's called Grokking Simplicity. It's at lispcast.com slash GS for Grokking Simplicity. That'll take you Which right. I have just found out is actually like part of a, it's not part of a series necessarily, but there are a bunch of books called Grokking X exactly. in the, the Manning publishing world. And they all world, have very and, similar covers. Yeah. They all seem really cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's a cool uh, collection there. Um, uh, so I'm on Twitter. I'm Eric Normand on Twitter. I like to talk about functional programming there. Uh, my blog is lispcast.com. That's where I talk about, you know, my kind of high-level ideas. And then I teach closure at purelyfunctional.tv. As Which video I will be courses. subscribing to. Oh, cool. Are you, are you interested in learning closure? I've been interested in learning closure for like about a year and a half now. And it's just something that has been it's been pushed off only by my sort of daily responsibilities so yes cool well i want to totally revamp my site but uh covid and the kids being home kind of put a put an end to that so i need to get back into that um but yeah it's uh it's a collection of like long form guides uh those are free written guides and then uh, videos that you can you can buy uh, that that go you know if you like watching someone code over their over their shoulder to to understand the the issues that's what those videos are and yeah so that's that's where I, how I split my time uh, writing this book and and uh, making and teaching closure. Yeah, not don't uh, don't forget to mention your YouTube channel because I, that's where I found out about ah, you. Right. And there's and a so, lot of great stuff. Yeah, yeah. So I have a podcast. I publish it to YouTube. I record the video of it just because why not? Um, so it's uh, you can find the podcast and all the links to the YouTube and everything at lispcast.com/podcast. And it's a podcast about functional programming, and it's very informal. It's just me and an idea. And they can run from, you know, 15 minutes to an hour and a half, me ranting and rambling about some idea. And sometimes I will read a paper and uh, read excerpt, like an important paper in the history of uh, computer science. And uh, I'll, I'll read excerpts and just comment on them. Yeah, I did catch your out of the tar pit analysis. Yeah, how'd you like it? Um, I, it kind of like was doing some other stuff at the same time. So I need to go back and watch it again. But I think, uh, it's one of those things where really, I think I need to start by reading the paper myself. Yeah. Yeah, probably. Which I've tried a couple of times and, uh, it's, it's not the easiest read. No, it's a very wordy paper. Um, I'm experimenting with the format. Like part of the, part of the thing is I think people need to read more papers and i don't really expect yeah and books and i don't expect that they're that they are going to so uh people are listening to podcasts so (laughs) you know maybe if i highlight 
some of the cool bits from the pod from the paper on the podcast and add and, and one of the reasons that they're hard to read is you kind of need some background information and context like some of these papers are so dense and tight that even after reading them three times i'm still finding new stuff and so it I, I kind of think that that's part of the commentary is to like say huh this phrase that they're using here we got to unpack that because i can't expect someone to read it three times if they're not going to read it one time so that's that's kind of the 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 value i see there is just really um getting like we we just don't know enough about the history of computing as a as an industry and uh it's it's great to surface these old papers for sure i think uh to I definitely will be creating a t-shirt probably that has someone with a cup of coffee or something that says drink coffee and then increment as kind of like a joke about the bathroom scenario that you put together earlier. <laughs> cool. Um, cool. So I'm probably going to create some sort of joke t-shirt from that because I thought it was hilarious. Um, but yeah, I definitely appreciate you coming on the podcast. I think maybe in a month or two, once I've learned some new things and have some more interesting questions, maybe you can come back on and we can chat again yeah yeah no problem that this was totally fun thanks tyler thank you all right folks that wraps it up for this episode of the virtual world i hope you enjoyed getting a solid introduction in, into eric's thoughts and approach to functional design there's a ton more great information in his book grokking simplicity from manning publications don't forget i have four free copies of his book to give away if you are interested, please reach out to me on Twitter or Reddit at TYTR underscore dev, no underscore on Reddit. Also, keep in mind that I now have a discount code and affiliate link with Manning. You can use my discount code PODVWORLD20 to get a 35% discount on all of their products. It will still be a day or two until the affiliate link is ready to go. Uh, I will be including an affiliate link to Eric's book in all of my posts about it, as well as the podcast episode description once it's ready. Thanks again to Manning for all of their generosity. Check them out on manning.com. I will also be interviewing another one of their authors, Tim McNamara, the author of Rust in Action, very soon. Stay tuned for more great content coming your way from the virtual world. This is Ty signing off. And don't forget to enjoy this cover of the Great Fairy Fountains theme from the Legend of Zelda series by yours truly. <laughs>